The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, March 8th, 2019. From Slate, The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The House of Representatives passed a resolution saying bad people are mean and also mean people are bad. Can we now go back to being the bad and mean people we always have been? Though the words in the non-binding statement were anodyne and pointless, the wending bizarre set of circumstances that led up to them were foolish and exasperating. Ilan Omar, freshman representative, phrased her criticism of Israel supporters in a way that is a common trope of anti-Semites. This on the heels of a tweet that criticized Israel supporters using a different trope that connotes anti-Semitism. And that came after an old tweet was unearthed where Omar criticized Israel using a trope that would be familiar to anti-Semites. What have we learned? Anti-Semitism has a lot of tropes. Because there is a lot of anti-Semitism. The world has been practicing it for thousands of years. But if I were to really tell you what I think, from what I can sense, the audience has been clamoring for this. Mike, what do you think? Here's what I think. Oh God, you asked. I think mostly what's going on is that Elon Omar doesn't know how to code switch in her speeches. So she came of age and is used to communicating within the Muslim community, within pretty far left communities. And there is simply among those communities, a shared assumption that Israel, or at least its policies, are a malevolent force in the world. And she's never been instructed as to what are the ways to say that that are acceptable outside of her community, and which you shouldn't say. Does this mean that Elon Omar is anti-Israel to say nothing of anti-Semitic per se? No, not per se, but I do think she's anti-Israel. If Elon Omar were in charge of U.S. foreign policies, her stance toward Israel would be like Sweden's stance toward the apartheid government in South Africa during the 1980s, which means doing whatever can be done to undo the system. I don't make the South African comparison because I believe in the smear that Israel practices apartheid. I make it because there aren't many examples of Western-aligned, economically-advanced first-world countries that the other Western-aligned, economically-advanced first-world countries shun for purely moral reasons. Some people, a small percent, but in America, some people, are in fact anti-Israel. It is the United States. It is okay if we have some members of Congress and some members of the media who take this stance, who argue this stance. I actually bet that Omar's constituents more or less support the stance. I wonder and do not think it's true for other members of her progressive caucus, including other female freshmen, women of color, members of what they call the squad, like AOC and Ayanna Presley. I bet that their constituents aren't anti-Israel. You know, I do have to say it would sure be better if you could make the charge, if you have to make the charge at all, without the anti-Semitic smears. I'm sure Elon Omar will get better at this. And then what? What will be that glorious day? We will have a politician who can effectively criticize Israel in a type of sanctioned code to select audiences. Yay. So if, if it costs saying that meanness is bad, to get to that exalted place, I'll take it. On the show today, I use the spiel for my own devices. Quite selfishly, in fact, it is an Antan twig. But first, since 1999, 350,000 Americans have died from opioid abuse, a little less, but on par with the number of Americans killed in World War II. I don't know what these statistics really convey anymore. I don't know what's the point of the next anecdote. What I do know is that a narrative with causes and consequences always plays well. 
and satisfies me. And journalist Chris McGreal has written just that narrative. American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. OxyContin, did you know that the Contin stood for continuous? It's one of those glaring facts that just kind of casually mentioned in the new book, American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts by Chris McGrill that opened my eyes. Ah, yes, the only reason that this drug that wrought so much devastation and continues to do so, the only reason that it exists is it claimed a continuous release of opioids over a 12-hour period versus the more compact release that its rivals offered. And from that, tens of thousands of Americans have died. Chris McCreel is a writer for The Guardian. He is an investigative journalist. He has covered wars, and now he is covering something with the kind of death toll that wars usually have. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hello. Very well, thank you. Where were you based when you started covering this story? In Washington, D.C., um, at that point, um, I was a Washington correspondent, although I was also traveling around the country looking partly at marginalized communities and poorer communities in the U.S. Um, long before it became fashionable because of Trump. This is, this is a few years back. Um, and I was traveling between the poorest towns in the United States, according to the census, writing about them and their histories and what they might have in common. And I, I was in a town called Beattyville in Eastern Kentucky, which uh, is a mostly white town. And this town was completely devastated by OxyContin and by opioid pres uh, prescription painkillers in general. And it really opened my eyes to the parts of America where this drug had taken hold in a way that no other uh, drug epidemic had ever done. Because I'm trying to, uh, I was trying to locate the time from which the uh, this book emanates out. I mean, it starts very, very early on. It goes back to a time when, you know, the founding of Purdue Pharmaceutical before it was even called that. Um, and the, the opioid epidemic uh, started taking hold in the 90s. But when was it, when did it become so inevitable that even a Washington-based correspondent would have to cover it as part of covering the situation in America? 
Well, that's one of the reasons I ended up writing the book. When I was in Beattyville, I um, I kept hearing from people who became hooked in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I thought, how is it that this epidemic could go on for 20 years? And yet, it wasn't until the last year of Obama's presidency that a president stood up and talked about this, uh, an epidemic that began under Bill Clinton. And when you look back at the numbers, when you look back at what was happening, it's clear that really by the early 2000s, the death toll was surging and that it was an epidemic in the making. And I think that by the mid-2000s, then no doubt that it could be classified as an epidemic. I was going to say, you have Obama's new head of the CDC. So upon inauguration, you know, 2009, looking at the statistics and having his eyes be opened and just saying, I, I can't believe what's going on. And that's 2009. And it doesn't really get talked about for another six, seven years. No, except there were people talking about it. There were doctors talking about it. There are even members of Congress talking about it, like Hal Rogers, who, who represents that eastern Kentucky district where Beattyville is, and politicians from West Virginia and, and and places were really badly hit by this, but nobody would listen to them. And that's partly, and it's part of the story here, is because actually the drug companies, particularly Purdue Pharma, but other pharmaceutical manufacturers, they kind of took control of everything here. They took control of medical policy. They effectively took control of the regulators. But the other thing they did was they took control of the narrative around this epidemic in order to basically blame the victims. And so that the the proper discussion of what was going on and the impacts of mass prescribing and what these powerful opioids were doing to people uh, wasn't really held until, as you say, the head of the CDC, Tom Frieden, comes out and calls it an epidemic in 2011. Right, 2011. Uh, but in 2009, overdose deaths uh, outnumbered traffic deaths, and I was hoping both were on the decline, but they weren't. Um, and in 2010, 16,000 people were killed from opioids. That's about the murder rate by gun, at least in the United States, is I think a little higher if you go back to 2010. So it does seem to me that if we think that at least in America, stories will get out. And part of the narrative is that there are some communities where you don't talk about it. But if something's happening, say, to, uh, you know, white people in the heartland, we're going to know about that. Totally untrue. Yeah, the fact that this came out of marginalized areas uh, and areas that are really in some ways invisible to other parts of America. So particularly Appalachia, southern West Virginia, uh, eastern Kentucky, parts of New England, Maine, big working class populations, because those were the crucibles of this epidemic, I think it was a big reason that it was ignored for so long, particularly when it comes to Appalachia. I think that there's a tendency in parts of this country and particularly by people on the coasts uh, to ignore what happens there, to essentially blame people for their condition, whether it's poverty or drug addiction, and to suggest that it's not going to spread anywhere else and that it might be unique to those areas. So while it took hold in uh, southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky and Ohio and and all of that part of the country, um, it set down really firm roots and began to to spread really just beyond the visibility of people on the coasts. Well, you or, or I have to blame, and I'm led there by just the reporting in your book, several prominent Democratic politicians. Hal Rogers, who you mentioned, is a Republican, but you have scenes where Chris Dodd defending Purdue Pharmaceutical, which is in his state, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. It's based in Connecticut. Yeah. So he essentially runs interference for the pharmaceutical company in a congressional hearing. And 
even though the head of the CDC is appointed by Obama, Friedman, Frieden uh, looked into it seriously. Obama did not, was silent on it. And an analogy I thought of was, was silent on it in the way that Ronald Reagan was silent about AIDS. And I couldn't help but thinking, well, what's his constituency? He doesn't think he's going to win West Virginia. He doesn't think he's going to win Kentucky. And even if I'm ascribing motivation, those are the facts. He doesn't talk about it for six, seven years of his presidency. That's right. And and Obama's health policy people weren't really interested in it. They were much more interested in getting the Affordable Care Act passed and various other issues. Yeah, as if those two aren't unbelievably interrelated. Well, indeed. It, absolutely. There is, at the core, a tension between uh, people who are very motivated to alleviate the pain of cancer sufferers and patients in general. And the thinking was that the old way of doing medicine was very patronizing and just didn't care, wasn't sensitive enough to the suffering of patients. Patients were either cured or not cured and the pain didn't matter. So enter pain specialists who really care about the pain, laudable uh, enough, but then they go beyond the best practices of things like double-blind surveys and um, real research to try to justify the pain medication that launches this epidemic. That's right. Like, like so much in life, it began with good intentions. And what you see these doctors do, uh, who, as you say, quite reasonably want to be able to do something about chronic pain. They see their patients coming to them and they, there's very little they can offer them. And they see opioids and what they think is there's an unreasonable stigma around opioids, um, which was a legacy of the Civil War on morphine. And at that point, basically, US medicine turns against them. And the opioid movement really arose again out of the hospice movement in the UK, where quite reasonably it was said, look, you can use these drugs for the dying, for people who have terminal cancer and they're dying in great pain. Addiction really doesn't matter, which was true. That comes to the United States. And then these doctors say, well, look, if you can treat terminal cancer patients with this, why can't you treat people living with, you know, debilitating arthritis and other conditions? And so... They set about breaking down the stigma, and to do that, they take studies that really were a very narrow, specific group of people and extrapolate. And one of the lead doctors on this, a guy called Russell Portnoy, has admitted that, that they've essentially fixed the science or that some of it was junk science. Right. Or even the ones that weren't were just maybe if there was a motivation of, hey, let's just raise a question or let's just point to this one study where we didn't show that people got addicted. Let's put this in a medical journal that first uh, first rejects it. And then let's say, why are you squelching our research? Even if the motivations for that didn't have ill intent, uh, the consequences couldn't have been worse. Well, that's right. I mean, I, Portnoy, he thought he was doing the right thing. The problem was in ignoring the evidence of addiction, it was never really addressed. And then you have the pharmaceutical manufacturers led by Purdue who come along and see a business opportunity. And then that gets built up into yeah. this mass prescribing that we see. And after that, it seems that once that uh, horse is out of the barn, there is no mechanism to rein it back in. Once Purdue starts making money hand over fist and developing methods of getting their pain pills to people who probably don't need it, including legions of mar marketers and sales reps. I mean, the government is just, it's inadequate to fight that tide. 
Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that they could have been reined in, particularly early on. There were doctors. There's a doctor called Jane Ballantyne, who's the head of uh, pain management at Harvard University and Massachusetts General Hospital. And she sees her patients aren't doing well on these drugs. And she does a study and she writes a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine ringing the alarm bells. And there are other doctors doing this. At that point, there are various organizations led by the Food and Drug Administration that could really have put a pause on this. They could have, for instance, do something that they have since done, but 15 years later, they could restrict the uh, prescribing of uh, OxyContin merely to severe pain. This is a really powerful opioid pill. Do you really need it for a twisted ankle? And there are other other institutions, uh, the medical profession for a start. The American Medical Association fought for years and years against doctors being trained in the administering of uh, opioid pain medication. Congress was warned early on and could have done things. But like I said earlier, it bought into the narrative of we've got to keep the prescribing wide. So I think that there were institutions and there were plenty of missed opportunities. In the book, I talk about a lost decade of opportunity when this thing really escalated until by 2012, the US is writing 255 million prescriptions a year for opioids. That's enough for 30 days supply for every adult in the country. And in the end, that is down to more than just the pharmaceutical industry. Yes. If there was one mistake, though, that all the regulators or would-be regulators or, or people like uh, Dr. Uh, Ballantyne in the field made, uh, one mistake they made, it was to think of Purdue Pharmaceutical more like, I don't know, a uh, benign or perhaps munificent guardian of the public trust and less like Pablo Escobar. Because once they got their profits aligned and once they saw how much they could make on the drug they didn't do anything except push the drug as much as they could fight back with regulation as much as they could um, obscure the studies as much as they could and the prescribing the scale of prescribing you might need two or three days worth of pills after an operation they sent you home with 30 days now what happens to those pills couple of things. One is they sit there in your medicine cabinet. Other people in the family start using them. Perhaps they're using them for they, they've just got aches and pains. Or they start getting passed around at work, particularly if you work on the mines. People share pills. People are having problems, physical problems. You know, you can become addicted to these drugs in as little as five days. And people are sitting there with, you know, two, three, four weeks worth of unused drugs in their medicine cabinet. Um, The other element in the prescribing was completely wrongly, the medical profession, those doctors who were trying to push against what they regarded as the stigma of opioids, claimed that you couldn't get addicted to opioids if you were in pain, if you were taking them for pain. And the consequence of that, they said, was that as long as you have pain, you can go increase, you can safely increase the dose. Purdue Pharma and the other drug companies embraced that and pushed it very heavily to the doctors. So you see people being given ever-increasing amounts of drugs. That was the other thing. Of course they were because they were building up a tolerance. It Precisely. Yeah. Um, were, so did they fake those studies or was it um, just willful blindness? How did they come out with that supposed fact? Well, that particular fact, which is known as pseudo-addiction, I mean, it was as good as faked. It was completely junk science. It was based on a single... Uh, a study of a single cancer patient in a hospital. That was it. That was the extent of the study. And it was pushed by a doctor called David Haddox. David Haddox at the time was an independent doctor, but within a few years, he's working for Purdue Pharma and became a very prominent figure within Purdue in pushing OxyContin. 
He's still around, isn't he? He is. <laughs> he's weighing in on the Trump administration uh, opioid. I, he's not on the board or anything, but, you know, he has op-eds out there about what the Trump administration do, should do to fight opioids. Well, one of the things that once you start to kind of pull back the layers of the onion is you discover that the same people who are often in the pay of uh, the pharmaceutical industry, appear all over the place. They're on advisory boards. They're inside FDA committees. They're supposed to be, you know, all of these opinions. But in fact, it's a small, a relatively small group of people who kind of switch between different organizations. They appear in, you know, the American Pain Foundation, which is also funded by the drug companies. And so uh, you, you see the same kind of opinions repeated over and over as though that they're a vast representation in the medical profession, and often they're not. Do you have a sense of how the current administration, the Trump administration, uh, they make a big show of what they're doing about opioids, but do you have a sense of how it's actually going? Um, I think a lot of people who are the cold face of this feel it's good that the administration's talking about it. Trump's Opioid Commission came out with a very good report. Uh, it identified the causes, what needed to be done. There's a feeling that that has really only been selectively acted on. There is the $8 billion bill spending to help. And in some places, that's definitely helping with providing treatment. You have these towns, they say it's making a difference. But I think they still feel a couple of things. One is the absolute absence of real national leadership on this. There's nobody that they feel is really in charge uh, and making things happen. And I think the other thing is that they feel that the all the talk about saying this is about the cartels, this is about uh, build the wall and keep the fentanyl out or whatever is a distraction. As long as the prescribing goes on, as long as there isn't sufficient access to treatment, as long as you know, the stigma has been broken down, but it's still it's still there. There's still lots of problems with stigma around getting people help. As long as that remains, I think they feel that there's a long way to go in addressing this. American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts is written by Chris McReel. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. And now the spiel. It is an Antan twig. Our name connoting the old English word for three weeks, a three-week period. Like a fortnight's two weeks, the Antan Twig is three weeks, and that is why every three weeks we check in. Let us check in the last time we did an Antan. It's January 11th, so I just blow right past the definition. I made up the definition. I'm allowed to do it. It's been how many? 31 days, January, leap year, carry the... It's been almost two months. Sorry. And I'm also sorry that I said cornstarch when I meant corn syrup a few days ago, talking about Budweiser and beer and a commercial that got the ire up of Coors and Amstel Light and some other beers that, you know, I drink only occasionally and responsibly. So cornstarch, I meant corn syrup. Both are delicious after dinner snacks. I would like to thank Phil Schneider for reaching out. And this was just today. This is so nice. I can, I can talk about Zwinglianism, the theology of Huldrych Zwingli, and I will have someone in the audience, Phil Schneider, in fact, who will say, thanks for the shout out for Zwingli. My denomination practices his version of communion, which is best described as memorialist. Communion is a memorial. No flesh, no blood, just crackers and Welch's grape juice. I think that's the right way to do it. Otherwise, by implication, we're all cannibals. 
It makes me sad on a Sunday. I made an erroneous reference to aircraft. There are some things that you could make a mistake on and a few people will catch it. But if you say like the wrong plural for data or phenomena, legions of people come and they swarm in on say F-22 Raptors, which is in fact the correct model of plane. I refer to the F-22 Falcon. It is in fact the F-22 Raptor. And and how nice was Eric Barrowman saying, seems like Mike got mixed up with the F-16 Falcon that's built in the same plant. Yes, I must have. It must be a totally reasonable mistake to make. Thank you for doing my work for me. Nicholas KMC, otherwise known as N.K. McCullum. So I'll say that this guy's name is Nick McCullum. I'm going to use context clues to say that Nick McCullum sent me this. Speaking of Australian things, which is my favorite favorite podcast from the ABC, a purple nurple is a nipple cripple. So the rhyming rule still applies. This, this changes my world. Nipple cripple is just better than a purple nurple. It's just better. It comes at a price, which is this. Nurple is the only word that rhymes with purple. So we need nurple. Otherwise, purple goes unrhymed. Of course, and this is kind of weird, that nurple, the only word, quote unquote word, that rhymes with purple, is only ever used right next to purple. The analogy would be if we renamed the silverback gorilla the silver bilver gorilla. What's bilver? Oh, that describes the back of the silver gorilla, of the silver bilver gorilla. Or if we renamed Valencia oranges, varange oranges, what's varange? Isn't it that place in Spain where they make the oranges? Sure. Anyway, nipple cripple, much better. I started looking up some other words. Orange is the most famous word without a rhyme. Some other pretty common words without a rhyme. They say that ninth doesn't have a rhyme. They say that wolf doesn't have a rhyme. And they also say that marathon doesn't have a rhyme. Marathon? I looked it up. There are some near rhymes, although there seems to be really no standardization when it comes to suggesting words that are near rhymes. Here are some suggested near rhymes for marathon. I sign off on these. A plum, cherry bomb, and that was your cherry bomb marathon. Coming up next, it's the Runaways with Cherry Bomb. And after that, Joe Jett does Cherry Bomb. And we've got Cherry Bomb as covered by John Cougar Mellencamp. And then the Runaways again with Cherry Bomb. Your Cherry Bomb marathon on your home of the hits. Also, Tarragon, that kind of does rhyme. Salam. So if we get people saying back and forth to each other, assalamu alaikum, wa alaikum salam. Oh, assalamu alaikum, wa alaikum salam. And it just goes in a loop. That's what's known as the alaikum salam marathon. There is a Kilimanjaro marathon that is held in the Tanzania capital of Dar es Salaam, thus narrowly averting the Dar es Salaam marathon. Other suggested rhymes for marathon, unicorn, which is a stretch, And then this shows up on the same page as the very apt tarragon, grandpa, hedgehog, and Utah. Yeah. And then at the end of all those suggestions, look up, look it up on the, in in your local rhyming dictionary. It says writer's block, writer's block. Very meta. We got a letter, a missive through the mail. Share a letter from Johnny Yavuta. Johnny Yavuta said, Mike. On Friday's podcast, this is a Friday, many, many weeks ago, not within the three-week period, you mentioned a Jeff Bezos quote. 
A common question that gets asked in business is why. An equally valid question is why not? You attribute it to JFK. I remembered it. By I, I mean Johnny Yavuta. I remembered it as RFK. Turns out we were both correct. How could we be both correct, I wondered. Well, it turns out that JFK said it while riding on the, on the Triborough Bridge, and that was later named after RFK. No, that is not what Johnny Yavuta was saying. Although, to back up for a second... Teddy Kennedy died in 2009, and the Triborough Bridge in New York was renamed the, the RFK Bridge in 2008. So it's, it's possible that Teddy Kennedy took the RFK to go to the airport JFK. That's got to that's mess with you. Anyway, what Johnny Yavuta was saying was that Teddy used it in his eulogy for RFK, and RFK was maybe quoting his brother JFK. Thank you, Johnny Yavuta. I mentioned Georgian naval maneuvers in the Bosporus, as one does. They're my favorite prog rock band, Georgian naval maneuvers in the Bosporus. Oh, and I got an earful. No, I just got a very nice note from Jonathan Kulik, who said, look, the Georgian Navy was destroyed in 2008. And anyway, it is not traversing the Black Sea, Black Sea. The real-life sea most likely to be found in Game of Thrones. Not traversing the Black Sea anytime soon. I took him for his word, but then he told me his credential. I used to work for the government of Georgia, so I am exercising this rare opportunity for gratuitous pedantry. Let me tell you, man, if you work for the government of Georgia, you got to take something out of that. And if it's the chance to correct me, so be it. All right. Now's the point in the Antan Twig where we named the Lobstars. The Lobstars were the people, the listeners who interacted mi- with me in the most satisfying way. The runner-up Lobstar of the Antan Twig is Anastasia Nakaz, who wrote to me about our Squatty Potty segment. She got into a whole way. She advised me on how anyone can squat while using a conventional toilet and get all the benefits of a Squatty Potty which is to say when you squat. I'm not going to read you the whole letter. I'll read you some highlighted parts, the whole anorectal angle thing, lean over your legs, sitting on the toilet so that your chest rests on your thighs, anorectal angle matters, raising your thighs up to your torso, women while peeing, help avoid UTIs. There you go. Thank you, Anastasia. Nekaz, you are the runner-up as Lobstar of the Antan Twig, which means if our Lobstar of the Antan Twig cannot serve, if he's, say, too backed up from ignoring the anorectal imperatives while squatting, you become the Lobstar. But for now, the true Lobstar goes to Andrew Brainard, who is uh, from, from Auckland, I believe, sent me this, and it regards an official information request that was submitted to the government of New Zealand regarding their prime minister, Jucinda Ardern. And here is the, I'll read the entire content of the request. Dear Sam, don't know who Sam is. Official Information Act relating to cabinet meeting conclusions. Thank you for your Official Information Act request received 26 January 2018. You asked, quote, does Jucinda Ardern ever end a cabinet meeting with meeting adjourned? <laughs> the answer is no, but I have mentioned your inquiry to the prime minister who enjoyed hearing about it. And it was mentioned to me by Andrew Brainard, who passed along this wonderful fact that evokes heads of state with senses of humor and countries small and manageable enough that they get back to you with a FOIA request within a week. Thank you, Andrew Brainard. You, 
or the lobstar of the Antan twig. And I think we could all say Antan twig are derned. That's it for today's show. Ho, ho, ho. We have a newsletter and it's uh, subscribable at slate.com slash gist news. I'll, I'll answer this trivia question in it. What do you say? Okay. Mortimer Sackler, who donated a bunch of money to the Egyptian wing of the Met, had a birthday there. They served a cake. The cake was shaped like a sphinx, except for one difference. Now, if a sphinx has the head of a woman, the body of a lion, the wings of an eagle, and the serpent-headed tail of whatever has a serpent head tail, how was the cake served for Mortimer Sackler different? That is my trivia question. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They have feet of clay, fingers of craftsmen, brains of a college philosophy department, and the collective dress code of a second semester freshman. What's the difference between TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, and a Scottish caber? The difference between TJ Raphael and a Scottish caber? Well, TJ Raphael has the soul of a poet, and a caber is a pole, and you can throw it. The gist bring you updates on Sweden's foreign policy in the 1980s since this morning. Umperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.